Okay, yeah, your face like just... froze for a second, and it was in this like position, and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so are you ready? Any questions, comments, concerns, haikus? No haikus. God, I wish I could drop a really good haiku. <laughs> just, you know those people like the language. Yes. Something amazing. Actually, I think it's a talking to the magnificent Kat Lundy. Kat, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, this is Kat Lundy and I'm also very happy to be here. Yay! So we've been um, trying to get Kat on the pod for a very long time. <laughs> like a very long time. <laughs> I don't even really remember. I feel like it's been like a year and a half that I've been trying to It's okay, we schedule. did it. We did, we did it, but thing. here we are now. Um, so I'm really, I'm really, really pumped that, um, you're on and you're chatting with me and she's raising the roof right now, um, which is really exciting. We don't um, need the audio commentary on that. <laughs> I love audio. Cause like, yes, podcasting, yes, is a audio medium, but you know, sometimes you got to give it color so people can visualize where we are sitting right now. I'm in a t-shirt. You know, I am in a 300 square foot apartment by myself <laughs> <laughs> because we're quarantined. Ba -da -da -ba -ba. Really, I'm so jealous of people with roommates right now. What I wouldn't give, I would have never asked for a roommate before, but in this stuff, oh man, give it me is any, nice. Give me my worst roommate, <laughs> and I will take that over being by myself. It is nice. I'm not going to lie. It's just like, so you know, like, because I think the scary thing always is like, you hear, um, you hear like voices. Like, if you hear something, you're like, oh, I know who that is. But if you don't hear anything, but I mean, if you then you do hear something, and you're like, where did that come from? Because you know or you live by yourself. Voices just start coming in yes. out of nowhere. <laughs> See, and that's when I know I've gone crazy. I don't want to do all that. So I'm very. Yes, I'm very happy to have roommates, so that way I know that um, I'm not gonna get killed because I listen to a lot of true. I listen to a lot of true crime, and that really is—it's a deep-seated fear. And honestly, I don't feel ashamed for it. So, you know what I just started listening to is the last podcast on the left. It's a true crime <gasps> mm -hmm, podcast. Mm -hmm. Some episodes are a little meh, but like I laugh out loud on some of these episodes and it is kind of you know it's true crime but they do a really good job if you like that like if you like like the f like comedy aspect of it you'll like my favorite murder my favorite murder yes oh my gosh i love my favorite murder i weirdly enough even though we've been like quarantined i've actually been really behind on my podcasts so i need to catch up on all of them there's like a huge backlog as also someone who creates podcast so <laughs> i just have a huge backlog of things i need to do um anyway we're talking about you that's the point yeah. of why we're here <laughs> um so kat today we're gonna really be kind of focusing on um her identity as a woman of color um, especially being filipino um and her work in the immigration community so do you want to start and give us a little bit of background on on those two things 
Yeah, so my background, so yes, Filipino, but also mixed mixed race mm-hmm. um, Filipino. And um, it's something that's come up a lot, I guess, recently with um, the coronavirus and sort of the backlash of racism that's being put onto Asian Americans in the country. And it's really, like, right, I've, I've been mixed race, and I think this might be something that a lot of mixed race kids re- can relate to, but you never really feel like you are part of mm-hmm really 100% accepted into either tribe. Like when I look at family photos from my dad's side, the, the New England Wonder Bread mayonnaise like white side <laughs> of the family. <laughs> I, right, me and my sisters are the only like kids with dark hair and dark skin. And then on the flip side, when you go to see pictures of me and my sisters and my mom's side of the family, which is brown and in California, everyone's got melanin, everyone's got dark hair. Mm-hmm we're the lightest, you know, crayon (laughs) in in that mix. So it's, when it comes to like the identity side, I've always like been really, really proud of being Filipino too, because Mm -hmm. like of, I don't know, it's, it's, you travel a country and you go places and like, you don't meet, or at least for me. And, you know, growing up in a predominantly white, white culture household, Mm -hmm when you run into other Filipinos or other people that look like you're like, oh, you can like spot them with Hawkeyes. <laughs> you're like, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or even like when you know, you kind of, you and someone else who's Filipino or even mixed, like give each other a couple of like hard mm-hmm. stares because you're both like doing the calculation in your head on look at those eyes, look at yeah. the skin, look at those cheekbones. Like I'm pretty sure. <laughs> um, so yeah when so when coronavirus hit i didn't know how to understand i was also going through uh, a bunch of things like why am i why am i why am i angry right now like duh i'm angry because people like even some of my filipino friends are like getting outside of like regular harassment are just getting saying go back to china i'm like we're not from china we're <laughs> we're from like bakersfield california like, it's, <laughs> It's, it's weird, and I think one of the... There was a bunch of articles. I, who's the famous actor, um, Asian actor? He was in um, Harold and Kumar. He's probably been in much more reputable <laughs> shows since then, but he was one of the Asian actors from Harold and Kumar go to White Castle, but he was like, this is the problem when Asians are lifted up as a model minority. You think that racism towards them isn't a big deal. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I yeah. saw this. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I totally, and I think that was like, oh, that kind of articulated sort of what I was feeling. Like, mm-hmm. like you, you, any stereotype that is based on someone's race, whether it is a positive, quote, mm-hmm. positive stereotype or negative one, is still extremely offensive. And it, for Asian Americans in this time, you've been lifting, white culture has been lifting it up as here's a minority that's, you know, has higher wages and, you know, is is doing all right like why can't all the other races be just like the asians mm-hmm. but then at the same time when something like a plague hits the country mm-hmm. the, like people are so willing to attack someone just based on their race on their um, race yeah yeah I, I think you hit on um 
on a really interesting point like this is kind of like the token minority that we should aspire to as as minority people but i think uh what's interesting to point out is you know you're talking about your filipino community being told to go back to china and then there's on top of on top of that there's kind of this one asian demographic that's seen as hell or held to a higher standard um because this the idea to not be able to distinguish between the different types of asian and i think often like when people hear asian they think only china when there's southeast asian indian like there's so many different types of asian just like there's so many different types of black or so many different types of latinx like i think um they threw you kind of in that monolith without really recognizing obvious obviously not recognizing where you come from where your community comes from yeah and filipinos for one like is a very catholic place and like a very non-catholic part of the world Mm -hmm. i mean i think you know like a lot of other asian nations it's had its year of like imperialism and like but with the philippine like the name Mm-hmm. It's from King Philip, Prince Philip, King Philip um, from Spain. And then it was taken over, what, in the 15th century? Mm-hmm. And then the U.S. helped us with our independence and then said, you know what? Uh, we're just going to claim you as a territory. We kind of take <laughs> that back. And then, and then it wasn't until, what, World War Two, Maybe shortly after World War like That's when the Philippines actually became a free place kind of like mm-hmm. all of these other places in like the 50s and 60s and in in Africa and other parts of the world where really European powers didn't have as much like all these other independence mm-hmm. movements were happening mm-hmm. um, so the Philippines is also like a part of that I, I mean I've had it where I've been really good friends with uh, you know this um, Korean girl that I used to work with at a restaurant and I once said like hey my asian sister or just like something stupid like that and she was like well you're filipino you're not really asian and i go oh that's how it is okay oh um so i think that there is even in asia there is like these hierarchies Mm -hmm. and you know it's kind of like that paper bag test like filipinos and people in southeast asia they got they're a little more brown it's a little more island it's a little more jungle Mm mm-hmm and then in mainland China and Korea and Japan, like that's very fair, fair skins. Like they still sell that makeup that yeah. makes your skin white in these mm-hmm. places. Do you um, feel, what do you feel like they categorize you as? Do you, do you feel like you were, cause that, that comment is very, um, very blunt obviously yes like to be like you're not really Apologies asian to listeners yeah. <laughs> but like so what so how do you feel like you were categorized or what do you what did you what did what do you think that she thought you that you fit into then if you're not if not being asian maybe something more like pacific islander i guess mm-hmm. I'll, I'll also say that uh, the girl i'm referencing she was actually she was born in korea and moved to the u.s um, mm-hmm. when she was 10 maybe um so you know probably right it's 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 a different culture there mm-hmm. just like it's a different culture here for me <clears throat> my dad was right he's white my mom's mm-hmm. you know um filipino with a little bit of um Spanish in her as well Mm -hmm. and I 
did not go around a lot of Filipinos. So like mm-hmm. almost the identity had to be created solely from like this insulated place with mm-hmm. just like my family. And then maybe going to like a Filipino food festival. Like mm-hmm. there's always a food festival somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> Google. Or, yeah. <laughs> or Google like Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. For like, if I'm not, I wasn't submerged in it. So I, it's something I had to find throughout my life and mm-hmm. into adulthood too. Um, like it wasn't until I moved to DC and started actually interacting with more Asian people that these are sort of, sort of the undercurrents that I mm-hmm. was like discovering. Um, like growing up, you're maybe one of two Asian kids in class. And Mm -hmm. so it's really easy to make fun of you when that's the most odd, like middle schoolers Mm -hmm. are terrible people. (laughs) Children scare me, man. (laughs) You're too tall, you're too short. Like anything they can quickly identify that sets you apart. And they do it so specifically and like it hurts you to your core and you're just like, well, dang, I mean, I didn't. I didn't need yeah, all this. Be like, I hate your hair beret. Like, uh, I melt down. Yeah, <laughs> like you didn't have to call it out so specifically. Shoot, man. Yeah, and so it's interesting. Also, just having sort of these things happen in the space that I'm at now. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't always work in immigration policy. I started my, you know, I graduated from school with a history degree mm-hmm. and went straight into being a paralegal in. Then I, after Donald Trump was elected, I was like, I am not just gonna watch this person and mm-hmm. this and this environment just take over mm-hmm. America, take over. I, I knew I wanted to dedicate my life to service in some way to, to a marginalized community. I started at school mm-hmm. um, and I thought I was gonna be a generalist, school being George Washington uh, Yes, we, we met because we were both in the same um, mm-hmm. master's program. In, yeah. uh, at GW. Yes. Sorry. And if you, yeah. <laughs> and if, if you recall, like right in our first month of school, like the rescinding of DACA happened. And yes. then it was just like, that was it. It was the spark I needed. I, I didn't want to be a generalist anymore. I was mm-hmm. like, I need to learn about this world. These are people that have like no rights, no privileges. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're the most easy to exploit. Um, and like scapegoat for a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And I think as a lot of people have seen in the past couple of years, anytime there's an issue, it's because of illegal immigration or it's mm-hmm. because of immigrants or it's because of, you know, the, yeah, always, always scapegoating the, the most vulnerable communities for entire national problems. <laughs> now, do you mind me asking, was your mother an immigrant to... She was not. Uh, My grandfather, so grandfather, his name was Ludivico, but Mm -hmm. when he moved to America, no one could pronounce Ludivico, so they just started calling him Rudy, (laughs) which is actually now a family name. (laughs) I have an uncle Rudy and a cousin Rudy. The fake name has now become... Like, kind of, yeah, like the the name that now is a family name. he was born in Hawaii, but he was born in like the thirties and mm-hmm. Hawaii was not a state back then. So mm-hmm. when you were born in Hawaii, you were not a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. It was, it's mm-hmm. like being born in like, uh, I guess, and I don't know this exactly, but probably a little bit more lines of being like born in Samoa now mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. one of the other territories. You're not mm-hmm. a U.S. citizen. Um, 
And then in, what is it, 40, 1940, 1941, Pearl Harbor happened. And mm-hmm. so his family was like, we're getting the heck out of here um, mm-hmm. and went back to the Philippines. And then it was an act of Congress in 1952 where they, you know, officially put, you know, Hawaii into the into the union. Mm-hmm. And anyone that was born in Hawaii after I think it was eighteen ninety nine, you <laughs> automatically become naturalized. Oh wow. So my grandfather was in that eighteen ninety nine to yeah. nineteen fifty two if you were born in that area. So he became naturalized afterwards. Mm-hmm. So he was the immigrants. He was naturalized, you know, after mm-hmm. after all that happened. Um he moved to the U.S., met a very nice uh, lady who we're still not sure about the timing because they got married really quickly <laughs> when they met. And then my auntie Susie was born um, short after. But um, they they were in Watsonville. Grandpa, he cut hair. He was he picked lettuce in the Salinas Valley. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of Filipino farm workers. Mm-hmm. Um he ended up, you know, having four kids, and then there's a moment where mom meets this guy who's very handsome. He <laughs> is from the the East Coast. He's a, pi- a pilot in the Air Force, and mm-hmm. then, like, the rest is sort of history. And then came um, Kat. And then came Kat. But it was interesting <laughs> because in that household, too, I think you see this with a lot of different, not necessarily immigrant households, but households where maybe English is the second language. Yeah. And I think for them too, like, right, it's safer to be as American as possible, even if mm-hmm. that might mm-hmm. mean, you know, hiding your culture or not necessarily passing that on to your children because mm-hmm. of how maybe their odds of success go up um, if they are considered more American. Yeah, than, yeah. Yeah, than other. So, so yeah. So okay, this is I'm gonna say, can sound completely ignorant. What language is is spoken in the Philippines? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's a couple different ones. I don't mm-hmm. even know all of them. I think there's like a bunch of different dialects. Mm-hmm. The one that most people know is called Tagalog. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, even Tagalog, you could be in one part of the. It's a country full of islands. Mm-hmm. You could be in one part of the the islands and and speak one dialect, and then another um, speak another dialect. Uh, Grandpa actually did not pass that on mm. to um, my sister and or my sister, my mother and her and her siblings. Mm-hmm. But I think it's actually more common that if in a household. Mm-hmm. another language is spoken it's the mother's language it is the one that's probably going to be put put more dominant uh, <clears throat> more dominant and passed down to the to mm-hmm. the children that's so that's so interesting to me the idea of you know americanizing your household which i mean i i experienced the same thing like with my family we definitely over the years became more americanized like i think even the traditional like Jamaican dishes that we had in our household and stuff have kind of like gone to the sideways because like my I didn't like to eat some of them and my sister like really didn't like to eat them <laughs> like a lot of them. Um, so you and, put like craft singles on. The <laughs> I was never a craft girl. That's fake cheese. But like, I, <laughs> um, but like I just I remember you know like especially as my sister got older, we just didn't have 
those meals in the house anymore um, because my parents were like, we're not going to make this if only us are going to eat it. You know, and they were tired of like trying to force my like I would, you know, there's many a dish that I do love. Um, but my sister's just a very picky eater. But yeah, I think about like food is such a is such a cultural thing. And that is a I mean, at least for Jamaica, that's like a big way to share in um, in who we are. And so once that kind of gets taken, not taken away, not that we don't eat it at all. I just think it really impacts kind of the culture your your own culture going up around you and feeling the need mm-hmm. to americanize because i even remember you know how i grew up is still very different from how my sister grew up but would be more similar to how someone would grow up in jamaica definitely not completely the same as my dad continually reminds me but like but definitely more like along those lines because it's just like a different culture but as you come here you feel the need to assimilate 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 a lot yeah i mean there's a term for it specifically it's um i think it's there's two terms assimilation and integration Mm -hmm. in terms of like how do we take somebody if because it's a culture shock Mm -hmm. for folks especially like refugees and asylees i mean anyone that has grown up in a completely different place and is now put into a completely different culture Mm -hmm. where you are now the minority um for like folks that are moving here from say Nigeria or an Angola like mm-hmm. you walk around and everyone like looks like you and now you're in a place where you are you're spotted right you yeah. I could see you from a mile away if you were out in a cornfield in Indiana I'm gonna know <laughs> you're there <laughs> um do you but, feel yeah. do you feel like you kind of came into your Filipino-ness during grad school because you were saying like a lot of your kind of thoughts started around that time well yeah uh, yeah I'd say yes because right I I grew up in a place I'm from southern Virginia by the way where Mm -hmm. it's very very Trump country and right we grew up in places where even if you've experienced harassment or discrimination Mm -hmm. like you've been conditioned it could be just me as a woman me as a person that doesn't look you know totally white but that it's safer to be quiet than to speak Mm -hmm. up for yourself Um, And then, so you almost start ignoring it and not even seeing Mm -hmm. when people are being flat out racist around you Mm -hmm. um, because of the culture that you're raised in. And then when I moved to DC, I was working in a space that, right, I was working as an intellectual property litigation paralegal where race was something that was still part of every day because it's right it's an mm-hmm. racism is an environment we live in it's not mm-hmm. just the individual actions that we see or consume and it wasn't until i started moving into like social justice work that all of the nuances and like my own relationship with this filipino identity like the thing that makes my face my face mm-hmm. right um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, really started um, coming out. I met some friends in grad school that were Filipino. I just, I'm in spaces where there are far more people of color. Mm -hmm. And it's been, right, I think everyone's journey with their own race and how they see and show up for other people is is a journey. Mm -hmm. And I'm just uh, one part of it. I know that sounds so cheesy. It's a journey. (laughs) No, but (laughs) but I think that's that's so interesting. It's like, I feel like, you know, as women of color, like, or just people of color, I feel like it does 
I feel like it does sometimes take a time for us to really come into our own and understand who we are, how we fit into spaces, because we are conditioned in a way to make ourselves small. Yeah. No, that's that's very true. I think it's like also just feeling like if I say something right now, I know no one's not going to do anything about it. Mm. Like even if I was like, hey, you know what you just said was like it's what is the word? the term oh I think it's I think it's called white fragility where we tend to not want to bring up right race is really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. comfortable for certain people to talk about um I think it's way more uncomfortable for some white audiences and so because I am like anticipating that what I am going to say will make somebody uncomfortable Mm -hmm. it's keeping me quiet Mm -hmm. um yeah, so I think that's a, it's another like weird aspect of it. And the more I've been in these spaces and like learned how to navigate that uncomfortable space, mm-hmm. I think it's just with practice. Like, right, we're it, it's just get being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Do you feel like, or have you ever kind of felt any pushback in your family to embracing more of this Filipino side because there was this kind of need to kind of Americanize? I'd say it wasn't necessarily that we were consciously trying to be Americanized. My, so I grew up in a military family. The Mm -hmm. the U.S. military in general is very white, especially at the officer level, Mm -hmm. because to be an officer in the U.S. military, you have to have had, I think it's a bachelor's degree or four-year degree. Yeah. And so if we think about during the 70s and 80s how many people were what types of people were most likely graduating um, with a bachelor's degree it's mostly white Um, and so in that space it's it's so weird it's kind of like Stepford Wivesy a little bit (laughs) like there's an officer's wives club there's an officer's club Mm -hmm. and I remember growing up and having like cookbooks around the house and they were for the squadron squadron is like that like a unit Mm -hmm. for the air force and we would have squadron cookbooks and that shit was just full of like tuna casserole rice and green bean casserole (laughs) it was like the the most was betty crocker like generic and that's those are the recipes i ate as a Mm -hmm. kid like i think there's a lot of pressure especially in what feels like sorority or fraternal spaces Mm -hmm. to like really fit in yeah and my mom is also going into those spaces as like one woman of color amongst probably a bunch of white ladies um i've never actually i should ask her about that i've never actually race is not something we talk about a lot in my family because Mm -hmm. i don't know they're just not they don't i don't think my mom really likes talking about it i think even in our household the people uh we still get uncomfortable talking about it with each other. Mm. I just happen to be working at now in a space where I can't talk about immigration without talking about race. Without talking about, do you feel how, how, I guess like how long did it take you to get comfortable with that? Like, cause you're right. If you're working with immigration, you can't not talk about race and ethnicity. Um, so what was that adjustment period like for you? I'd say I was really timid. I didn't want to say anything that would offend, even when I was just starting into like talking about race and talking about like, I didn't want to say anything that sounded tone deaf. I didn't want to say Mm -hmm. anything that was like 
too aggressive for something that is not my lived experience. Mm. Um, I don't know how you feel sometimes when I see on Facebook where some of my white friends are like, I am so angry. And I'm like, that's so great that you're angry. But at this, that you can channel your anger into something more positive, like voting at the midterms or something like at the same time, this is someone else's lived experience and it's a privilege to be able to be angry, angry, mm-hmm. right? Like when we said that we're going to be, when people stay silent about issues that bother them, especially if they're from that a marginalized community, right? You see like guys with machine guns going to courthouses and screaming into cops faces because they don't fear consequences. But as soon as I get a little bit of an attitude in a room, I'm mm-hmm. an angry woman of color. <laughs> like, right. And it's, it's, it's a dominant way of silencing somebody. Mm-hmm. Like I have, I have to fear consequences if I want to like talk back to an officer. But there are some people that do not fear those consequences. And I don't think they realize that they don't fear those consequences. They're like, I have rights. This is America. Because America treats you differently, man. Mm-hmm. America doesn't treat me the same way as it treats you. And go- I, I, yeah. And going back on that, was, were there things that you kind of like reconciled with and was like, oh, I didn't realize I was checking myself in that way. And then you got to this new space, a space of working in immigration. You were like, oh, I was silencing my own self because, you know, things I had like internalized and and just you kind because I sorry, I know that's kind of a roundabout way because I know there's things that that I used to not say when I was younger or or, you know, even a year ago because I had kind of been trained to not say them or train to not act a certain way and train to appease certain people. Um, and then when you're kind of allowed to kind of let that go, you don't realize how much you've internalized. So did you kind of have that, that check? You know what? I did have that check, but not necessarily from race. It was more about what I, my identity as a woman, Mm -hmm. I, you know, right, there are all these other nuances of being a woman and staying silent. I think we see that with, like, the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. There are still people that are afraid to speak up because, right, what happens when they spoke up? The internet and Twitter tried taking them down. Mm -hmm. And it's no wonder that that people aren't talking more. But I think as I grew up, the biggest thing that I realized is how much I was letting people or letting myself what is this expression? You teach people how to treat you. Yeah. And I realized that I was teaching people to treat me differently because Mm -hmm. I was a woman. Um, so like letting things slide or having like letting, talking to a a dumb boy for too long and be (laughs) like, you know what? He just really doesn't respect me. Like, Mm -hmm. why am I dealing with this? Or I think one of the biggest ones was just realizing like putting my foot down on how I was treating other women too. Mm -hmm. Like, if I'm really getting on some girl because of the purse she's wearing, like, is that really a problem with her or a problem with me? Mm-hmm. And really realizing that when you have complaints, is it, you are you, is that complaint telling me more about how I feel or what that mm-hmm. other person is doing? Um, Do you feel like you were making those ideas or comments about women because of the things that you had learned from society about how women should act, how women of color should act? 
I think that it's it's that cool girl, like cool girl in the group, like, mm-hmm. oh, I can like burp or fart in front of her. She's a cool girl. Or, oh, I can talk about like my night I had last night with that girl because Kat's like a cool girl. She's part of that crowd. <laughs> um, and then realizing like, you know what? I really don't need to listen to this and you actually shouldn't be talking that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the biggest things was... Um, when so right the the excess hollywood bus mm-hmm. thing came out and i was all all these new these all these new stories are coming out and really analyzing what assault is and what mm-hmm. sexual assault was so can you be more specific and, about what you're just so people know what you're talking about more specifically wait which which part sorry about the the hollywood access bus oh access sorry in 2016, I believe there was an Access Hollywood tape that came out that had Trump on tape saying "grab her by the hoo-ha," and <laughs> that was describing sexual assault. And then, uh, you know, the news is starts talking, and people start coming forward, and people are like, "That's not sexual assault. All he did was touch her butt." And you're like, "No, though, that's sexual mm-hmm. assault." Like, and it was when I started hearing like. No, that thing that has actually happened to me, that was sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. And then mm-hmm. it just was like flying back on how many times I've been sexually assaulted, either by a coworker, by a friend, or like a guy like snapping my bra strap in like middle school. Like you start realizing how many times my body was was someone else was something for someone else to mm-hmm. play with. And then that was like a revelation for me. I think it was also just like really annoying how at my t- at the time I had this boyfriend who was kind of a kind of a jerk, really much a jerk. Um, <laughs> and I remember being in spaces about how like you know when your friend says something disgusting, you should tell him that's gross. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know. He's like my friend. I think he's kidding. I'm like, you know though, if mm-hmm. your friend said something super racist, you would have no problem telling mm-hmm. him to be quiet or telling him that that wasn't cool. What is the difference between you calling him out for saying something completely sexist? You're showing up for one group and you're not showing up for another one because having to tell your friend that he's sexist makes you more uncomfortable than having to tell your friend he's racist. Like <laughs> a lot As if of those stuff two like things that. can't be inter intermingled. Yeah, like he like focus or he would focus strictly on one without saying like there's also a whole other level of disrespect that's Mm -hmm. happening to another group of people and I think that whole time period was just was really rough for a lot of women Mm -hmm. I mean yeah I think I think you bring up an interesting point about about comparing sexism and racism and I I am not one to like to compare traumas Um, but I, I wonder how many of us as women of color were reminded first that they were women and then a person of color, if that makes sense. Um, because yeah. I feel like I was, I'm more reminded every day that I'm black than I'm reminded I'm a woman. And I don't know if you have that same experience. Well, I, I'll think pre-COVID because now I, I do anything to have someone be like, Hey girl, <laughs> just kidding. I, I, but like, right. I haven't seen someone in a while. I think that if I were to go back to the time before this whole thing happened, I would probably feel 
right? It's it's another thing about my face because when mm-hmm. people approach me, they know like you look like you're mixed with something, which mm-hmm. is already kind of uncomfortable to, yeah. <laughs> to like, have be like, "What's your race? Let me guess." And I love the "Let me guess your face," which is game. a very <laughs> strange way to open yourself to somebody. Like, hey, girl, or, let me yeah. guess who you are. <laughs> And I don't know if it happens like with uh, uh, women that are Latino or, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily black, but it's always like the where are you really from? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, I think it happens across like everything. I'd say that it, in terms of if I was feeling slighted, not even feeling slighted, there was a moment where I felt like I was being silenced or disempowered. Mm-hmm. I would have probably felt like it was coming from the place because uh, because of sexism because it's the one that I think I have experienced more sexism than Mm -hmm. I have racism. Um, Being, you know, in that the work I was in, I wasn't stupid. I knew that like I worked with a bunch of other paralegals that were also young women. They were all pretty good looking, pretty Mm -hmm. good looking ladies. And so that, that we experienced little, I had a boss that would put his arm around me around my waist, like, like try and talk to me in the 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 closet with all the folders when i'm trying to like fix a brief together just let us do our job you know what that is my like go away (laughs) you have a wife and children get a life i think that's the mantra of the episode (laughs) go away (laughs) well you know what and i'm not I I I tried like talking. There was like that moment where everyone was sending letters to like mm-hmm. reporters and everything about like, you know, this is my story. Like I I did that. I sent an email to one of the me t- me to Washington Post reporters that mm-hmm. like one I knew that was reporting on stuff. I'm sure that they were just waiting for like, you know, the juicy celebrity <laughs> of like this person was accused. Mm-hmm. But like I remember I was like this this some of these people that work at these places in dc who on the outside look like you know model citizens are actually pretty Mm -hmm. creepy and there's a high turnover rate for a reason and it can't just be because the wages are low it's because you're treated like garbage and for some girls i'm sure they're right they have you have no power in, Mm -hmm. in some of these positions because you just want to, you want to be able to make it in D.C. They, they, <laughs> Ooh, girl. they sink or swim in this town. It really, I mean, it really is. And I think, and that's, and that's part of it is just kind of, you know, part of this podcast is really just talking to women and hearing their stories. Because I think mm-hmm. it is incredible kind of even the small things that we kind of have to overcome and not saying every woman has to overcome a significant amount of challenges but I think even to your point of saying like I didn't realize that (laughs) this was sexual harassment and I and I think a lot of us I think a lot of us went through that um especially I think at least for me I feel like high school was definitely an early college just because I didn't fully understand what was happening no, they didn't, that's probably not the right way to phrase it but just like yeah you were like oh that person's kind of a jerk but I don't think you categorize it as harassment mm-hmm. yeah totally yeah and I feel like a lot of a lot of women go through that um, and experience that on a regular basis and I think the ability to not have to always be hyper aware of the space that you're taking up is such a gift 
because I I feel like I feel like I recognize either during or after like the times when I didn't feel like I have to be hyper aware of like the space that I'm taking up or how I look in a certain area or what I'm wearing um and those are very few and far in between because you constantly feel like you're put on because we because society has told us that like other people are allowed to comment and judge on our bodies yeah god figuring out what to wear is like the most annoying part of my day i work in an office i don't Mm -hmm. really have to go to the hill that often it's Mm -hmm. usually like to pinch hit for somebody else who's got a different meeting but Mm -hmm. we really want to bring up a particular issue at like a meet uh, something on the hill and then having a oh my god i have to pull out the dress and i have to pull out the heels Mm -hmm. and i because just the level of deference you have to show in, on Capitol Hill. One is just really annoying. Like I thought <laughs> congressmen worked for me. I didn't know I had to like <laughs> show up for them every yeah. single time they get in a room. Like, and there's I right. mean there's rules about like ladies can't wear sleeveless dresses, you know, or they have to have like a sweater or something. Like there's like all these strange rules and it's like why is that? Is that going to stop you from doing your job? Is that like you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah there's I think there's there's a perfect example is, you know, I used to work at um, this retail place and I was told by several women that I worked with, like, okay, when you come in on your days off, like, you probably shouldn't wear shorts. Why is that your business? <laughs> and they were saying that because, like, this, this of wanting to help me and, like, make me feel comfortable because they knew that certain guys in there would talk about it. And talk about how your body looks if you wore shorts. Well, why don't they spend their time talking about how they can correct those men's <laughs> thinking versus trying to correct what's on your body? I know, this ridiculous. idea that we have to be the ones to change what we're doing versus that those other people mm-hmm. learning not to comment. Yeah, it's like the all of our all of the things that we do against like rape, it's like don't get raped instead of don't rape people. Like, yes. Who's actually creating this problem here? Because I was continuing to mind my business. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, exactly. So backtracking a little bit, just to go back to your to your work in immigration, what has that mm. what has that been like for you as as a woman of color working in that immigration slash development slash refugee? Because it's all in. I mean, it's all encompassing. Yeah, I think one. It's been. It's been one of the most like eye-opening things that I've ever experienced mm-hmm. in my life. There are very few moments where in my life that have been so powerful. Like I'll, one particular thing that I did last year was we participated in something called a, a listening session, mm-hmm. where basically we had three different groups. We had a group of service providers that do direct service with um, immigrant communities in Nashville. We did one with. Um, advocates themselves so people that are advocating for policies to city council members and doing some of that direct service help too and then a group of um, immigrants themselves and the whole thing is set up around three questions three questions are like what is what is does america mean to you um i forget the other one like how would you what would you change about Mm -hmm. this world to, to to have like this a better ability to to thrive and mm-hmm. to like have security i'm i'm totally slaughtering these are very meticulously <laughs> selected questions because there are only three 
but the deal is it's a listening session you are trying your best it's very it's human habit when someone's mm -hmm. talking to you you want to nod you want to make noises so that they know that you're listening and engaged yeah and engaged the point of this is to more mellow those out so that person has like this moment of uh of like almost like silent communion mm -hmm. and you're not allowed to cut people off they're allowed to talk about whatever they want to answer that question they're allowed to trail off and then when they're done talking with the microphone they set it down and after like of course the first five minutes no one wants to pick up the microphone because you're sitting in five minutes of silence mm -hmm. like that is a long time to be thinking and to also have like this low level anxiety of like do I have to speak? I don't know what to say. <laughs> but after, but after like 10 minutes, people really start opening up and you realize that when you actually are taking away the structure from like the conversation that you want to have, mm -hmm. how much more nuanced answers that you're getting. And for me, it was really powerful hearing some of the stories. Like there was a story of a librarian. She's a librarian. She's like, I started because I wanted to, you know, help, um, help uh, get people connected to to education and to learning um and then all of a sudden all of these things started happening when trump took office and now i have to know a ton about immigration policy because we all already had some of these services at the national library but now like mm -hmm. more people are accessing accessing them and somehow i've gone from being a librarian plus an immigration expert Mm. Or there was someone who worked at a sexual assault center and she told this story that had me almost on the floor of like a seven-year-old who was basically allowing an uncle to abuse her in the same household because she didn't want to call the cops because her mother was undocumented and she didn't want her mom to like get arrested and like have ICE come mm -hmm. and take her away. There, it just really grounded me in that, right? I, I mostly work on immigrant access to like healthcare and to benefit mm -hmm. and basic needs programs. And then I'm having this other layer of this all, when we're thinking about immigration issues, we kind of like silo them into individual mm -hmm. things, but really the community is feeling them all at once. Mm -hmm. Like feeling the Muslim ban, feeling public charge, feeling like the borders, closed now mm -hmm. <laughs> and honestly i don't know if it's going to open up until after november like think about like all of the the economy is going to go to crap and again this is a group of people that have been scapegoated for a lot of problems with the border closed and with you know an administration that really doesn't follow the rules they don't care about the rules like I, I, I sometimes I go down that rabbit hole of fearing mm -hmm. the worst for, for this group of people and all of all of the, the COVID stuff. I mean, they're essential workers, too. Not even mm -hmm. just workers. They're, they're people. Mm -hmm. They should be allowed to access COVID testing just like everybody else. This is a public health crisis. When one person doesn't get a test, you still have an issue with a, a, a virus <laughs> that mm -hmm. can spread so quickly and is terribly infectious. Do like, you, yeah. In the space that you're working in, I mean, pre, pre COVID, do you think that there was enough representation amongst, amongst workers? I know coming from like the nonprofit, like development space, there definitely wasn't at all. I, 
attended and I, I attended and I wrote an article about the stabilization symposium that happened a couple years back and all, I think all but two of the the moderators and people that were leading discussions were white mm-hmm. um they're also even those in, in attendance majority of them were white I think it was like me and a handful of other people of color not just like black people just like people of color mm-hmm. um so I'm I'm wondering because I feel like the immigration space coalesces so so much with the development and peace building space like do, do you see that same kind of trend I'll say that in most immigration spaces that I see right mm-hmm. it's like it's kind of like any other policy sector so and even in education you have people that do k through 12 they do post secondary or like curriculums like there are a bunch of different policies that are you know in that one thing immigration your immigration status is one of the number one things that can deny you access to something mm-hmm. so there are in the Department of Education, there are rules for what immigrants can and can't access. In healthcare, there are rules for what immigrants can and can't access. In but do you, as work, as yeah. as workers? Oh, as workers. Yes, so. yes. As you, as like a oh. work, because that's what I was saying. Like the a lot of it's it was still mostly dominated by. It was definitely oh, totally. still a white space, it's, even though we're helping majority non-white countries. Yeah, I'd say that there still is a lot of white ladies in immigration spaces. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But right in any movement of empowerment, like usually the people themselves are the ones that really need to lead. Mm -hmm. Like it's their movement. Like I don't even really like the word empowerment either because it's (laughs) like, let me give you something. Let me Mm -hmm. give you power. Like, no, actually, we had that power already. We just need to exercise it we need to find it we need to uh, harness mm-hmm. it in some way like I think that's in terms of white ladies in the space there's still a lot of white ladies in the space particularly when we're talking about like when we're talking about public benefits programs specifically mm-hmm. because that brings in like the anti-poverty crowd mm-hmm. which are all about protecting access to the benefit but Historically, they don't talk about race. They mm-hmm. they focus mostly on poverty as like this thing that's synonymous. Like it's a colorblind approach, mm-hmm. right, to, mm-hmm. to helping people with low incomes. And so, I mean, it's a group that I have to work with a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a group that I think could come a lot farther in like talking about how poverty is tied to race, race is tied to poverty, and mm-hmm. that is not by accident. And it's it, it's it's something that you have to be real upfront about mm-hmm. and talk about, um, especially if one of your goals is I don't want to be that person that's always I don't want to just keep giving people fishes. I want to teach people how to fish, and mm-hmm. I think that when you're not bringing up race directly in these spaces, that you're not actually. I don't think that if I get healthcare for all for immigrants, it's going to do anything to change. Right, that America's racist and America will still treat them like treat them and other people of color like crap like Mm -hmm. right we can get the policy victory but at the end of the day if the culture hasn't changed who gives a shit Mm -hmm. so you would say like what you're seeing is like a lack of cultural understanding i guess is the is the correct i'd say it is a lack of 
right? Because at the end of the day, we have funders that want to mm-hmm. see what we're talking about. And funders, some are very comfortable being like, bring it up, bring up race. And some are like, can you just focus on the benefits, though? Mm-hmm. Like, we'll give you, like, diving deeper into these spaces, you know, it you're not sure, like, what's at risk or, or what partnerships you might lose along the way. Right. Because it's like it's an industry. Advocacy in D.C. is an industry. Mm -hmm. It has millions of dollars attached to it. It has a lot of unpaid work. And Mm -hmm. most of that is being done by people of color and people that genuinely care about the movement. Um, I wish it wasn't so white. I think we're finally getting to the point where, right, like we have more people of color that are that are graduating and getting like bachelor's degrees we're it's a very credentialist place too mm-hmm. right so when you want to get like the best of the best get that graduate from harvard get that graduate from yale how many black people go to harvard how many black people go to yale it's like no wonder that we're not really getting you know i out of like the five black people that go to yale i can't <laughs> I can't just take like there aren't enough to go around so like why do we have to have like this credentialist model on how we are incorporating people of color into this space because at the end of the day you're still putting this deserving value on Mm -hmm. someone that went to Harvard versus someone that maybe didn't go to like a big right elitist school but still has that same passion that same vision like for me at the end of the day it's all those other things the passion the willingness to stay in this movement Mm -hmm. because we've had a lot of l's a lot of losses in the past three years so everyone's heart in it is like very it's it's really hard like getting one right after the other um i think i think you bring up a good point about um about having access to this space because because you're right, like not a lot of people of color may not be going to those schools. And I think on top of that, a lot of development, um, immigration, refugee work is a lot of nonprofits. And they they do want like the cream of the crop, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but a lot of the experience is unpaid because those internships are unpaid. And, you know, realistically speaking people of color tend to come from lower income backgrounds who can't afford to take an unpaid internship they can't have afforded to live abroad because i i even know that you know a lot of when i was still more in like the development space a lot of jobs um besides like okay i had the master's thing down because i was getting that but then it's like we also wanted you to have lived abroad when was I supposed to have time and money to find a job to live abroad? And then when you look at things to live abroad, it's like, okay, well, you can kind of like volunteer in these spaces or do like, you know, work in nonprofit, you know, and like stuff that you don't really get paid or it's stuff. It's like, we'll pay for your room and board, but we won't actually pay you. So it's like, I can't afford yeah. to, to do that. I can't afford to do anything unpaid. And I think that puts a limitation and it creates like such a barrier of entry into the nonprofit world, into the development world um, for people of color because they can't financially sustain themselves to do to do that kind of work, even if they want to do that kind of work. Um, I know it's it's changed kind of our approach to like how we're doing the intern process like when we have this uh, there's a thing called first gen um, we, we 
it's our first gen intern, but it's somebody <laughs> that is in a first generation student, mm-hmm. and um, mostly from um, immigrant backgrounds. And when we're thinking about like you know who has the best resume, one of the things too for any people that are trying to get an internship on the phone, like the cover letter is really really important. Don't skimp on that because in this business or in this business, well, I guess it is an industry. It is a, it's so a business. It's, it's a business. But like, I want to see passion on that page. How many times, like, right, you're in, you're a, a, in a bachelor's program. As long as you can operate a Google Doc and answer an email, like, <laughs> that's fine. Like, that's really the experience and expertise you, you need. I'm not going to give people like ridiculously hard writing projects. Mm-hmm. I really want them to have the experience and get the exposure. The exposure yeah. is the part that is the most beneficial. But at the end of the day, if it was somebody who had passion on the page but didn't go to like Harvard versus the person at Harvard mm-hmm. who had like not demonstrated that their that this is their passion is immigration or their passion mm-hmm. is um, serving this community, I will give it to the person that didn't go to Harvard like every single time. Mm-hmm. Because, because they've, they've yeah. demonstrated and like this could be their this could be their foot in the in the door um and i think i think of an example of um a friend of mine uh works for a government agency and and he was telling me that um because he used to be in the process of like hiring their interns he used to be involved in that process and uh, this this wasn't that long ago. They stopped paying their interns. I think this was in like the past two or three years. And he said, when we stopped, when we decided that we weren't going to pay interns anymore, the applicant pool started to look entirely the same. He's like, you could pick any one of them out. They were all, he's like white guys from wealthy schools. Like he's like, we lost that diversity, that diverse background, that passion. Um, and he was saying how, you know, his his organization would come together and be like, we don't have a diverse pool of applicants. And he's like, because you stopped paying them. <laughs> because, yeah. Because that community can't afford to take something, take something un, unpaid. And um, I, I feel like we, you know, we, we claim we want diversity and, and inclusivity of women and people of color. But we're not willing to put our money where our mouth is, and I think money is a is a massive barrier to so many things. Um, uh, yeah. And funding, <laughs> and so it's just like you can't you can't expect to have diverse places if you're not willing to pay people because the reality is like DC is an expensive place to live. Hella as is any major city that because the major cities are the ones that deal with development a lot of the big nonprofit work and things like that and those are expensive places to live and if you're gonna or pay me five dollars bullshit of like we want people that really care so of course we're not gonna attach money to it like okay I don't see how not paying somebody <laughs> and not giving them money for food is the really the best way to demonstrate how much they care about this issue <laughs> I'm, I'm willing like- to starve for you please hire me like what I'm not willing to starve for anybody. I, Listen, no. I need to eat on a regular basis, but I, but I think, I mean, it brings up a good point, and I think it, I think it's great to have people that look like you in those spaces because there are so few of us that look like you in those spaces that are trying to help people that look like us, 
and I think I think there is there is something to that. The other thing too is something that right. I am like everybody else, or a lot of nonprofits that have a Slack channel that has mm-hmm. like a or just a billion channels. And one thing of the things that we've been watching since this whole quarantine is playing out is like narrative and how you are framing the issue or mm-hmm. how you are framing the problem. Right? People are like, I have no rights. I want to get a haircut that's one frame or the other frame is make other people put their lives at risk for me so I can get like my hair done. Like Mm -hmm. that is a whole other way to frame this. And so one of the things we've been doing is framing or looking at how they've been framing the narratives around like, right. This, we see it all the time. People are willing to say, uh, people of color are being disproportionately impacted by, by the quarantine. And they end it there without talking about why. And mm-hmm. I feel like you taking that one step further and talking about why, how, yeah, corn, they keep saying coronavirus isn't racist. No, but America is. And mm. the institutions that have been set up were not set up with me in mind and with people of color in mind. It has been set up in a way it's no, it's no coincidence that they're being disproportionately impacted like the way that we have been distributing resources and supporting people has never been to really support those folks. It's, you know, and I, and I agree because I mean, we, we are covering a lot of stories about how communities of color, I wouldn't even say a lot of stories. It depends on, you know, what channels you're plugged into, um, in terms of Twitter. So like, but you know, a lot of, a lot of communities of color are being disproportionately affected. And that goes because communities of color, a lot of them work in those quote unquote essential jobs. So that's in the grocery stores. That's like, you know, like, I don't know, just like retail, retail positions, positions that we're not able to quote unquote work from home, lower paid positions. Also communities of color living in lower income neighborhoods that don't necessarily have access to, um, hospital care or physician care, uh, rural communities, which is huge right now. Um, and they already were in hospital deserts and having to drive, you know, two hours to get to a hospital. So they're also being disproportionately affected. Um, and you're right. Cause we're not ex- like, they're being disproportionately affected, but why is that? Cause of systems put in place that we have to recognize. And I think it's it's going to be until you know we have people in those higher up spaces to kind of call call that out and and work deeply in that i mean it depends on how high you want to go because right now <laughs> we got two white guys that are running for president and nancy also speaker of the house is white mitch mcconnell is white and i bless her heart nancy i know she's trying her her darndest to like make sure that people are being protected and that people are getting the resources that they need but i sure as hell have not forgotten that there have been three legislative packages to help people and so far they have done very little to help immigrants that same lady stood up in four inch heels and talked for seven hours about how important kids with daca are blah blah like great you stood up in heels and you had your moment in the sun and they covered it a lot at cnn and we passed hr6 thank you very much for all the congress (laughs) members that that voted for that but like it's just it's to me it's just like okay you had our back then but now it's politically inconvenient to want to help immigrants so you are going to say that you're going to try really hard but like i'm up against this like when 
when is it not when do you not care about political convenience because this is a group that right even during the ACA fight to get access to health care that got chopped off there are so many ways that there are carve outs for immigrants and it's historical it's 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 not anything new it's just really upsetting in terms of people in power speaking to power right speaking to mm-hmm. power is hard speaking to power right you don't want to fear consequences it's what keeps you from like managing up to your boss and being like i think we should approach this a different way or managing sideways to maybe someone who's in a different department like speaking speaking up against those things because even when we're doing like these like legislative strategies or outside strategies on like getting meetings with members like Mm -hmm. and thinking about how do i apply pressure points to a different member depending on like is he or she up for re-election or how did they vote on this previous thing it really is a it's a whole game Mm -hmm. this industry works in a game and I've been really sick of the game lately because mm-hmm. it's a game that's playing with people's lives and it's just not funny anymore. I, I mean, I, I need Nancy to come on girl. I, I really, I really love to see your passion. I love to see that passion from women because I, you know, fully believe in our ability to make a lot of change. Um, and like my last question for you that I ask all my guests is, um, how do you define being a woman or womanhood? Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how do I find being a woman? For me, what it means for me to be a woman, I love being a woman. I love I love my body. I love everything about my body, even though there are times that there are things I don't, you know, don't like about it sometimes, mm-hmm. but I still, you know, would like that I have this than than the other. Um I believe in loving other people and not attributing something to add to like a gender so while i've had really crummy um dates with boys i've had really crummy dates with girls too like i i i think that when i'm when i think about gender equality i think it is you know a matter of you know putting everyone at, at an equal foot including including women you don't like and i don't believe in feminists that like tear down other other women um mm-hmm. Not that, like, you have to be on every woman's side, mm-hmm. but you see it all the time where someone wants to, like, congratulate Kim Kardashian on being a part of, like, the, the Innocence Project, but then, like, when she has, like, a a pimple, like, oh, my God, girl, like, cover up your pimple. Like, I don't <laughs> I understand where where the community community ends for some folks and mm-hmm. that's that's something right it's it's just so hard for me to i've never i guess i've never really thought about what how i would define what it means to to be a woman or, or womanhood um i think humanhood for me mm-hmm. like i can't change that i'm a woman i'm not going to be able to change how people see me i can just do that like what i said earlier like teach people how to treat you mm-hmm. so if you're teaching people to step on you they're going to keep stepping on you if you're teaching people that you're not going to come at me like that we're going to talk about this like adults or we're Mm going to come to like a a, like an amicable solution to a problem that's how people are going to treat me um i think that when you are coming from the best of intentions and when you generally genuinely care about the people you're trying to solve problems with or the people on your team or even your friends 
that you are allowed to be as honest as you want to be as long as you're always coming from the, the best intentions of genuinely caring about another person. And I think that I do genuinely care mm-hmm. about most people that I'm with. So, like, that's why I can be very blunt. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I have a mean bone in my body when I'm trying to be honest. I think that's the most important thing is, is to me, being honest and being humble. If I could, If I could say... For me, what would be the most important thing about being a woman, especially in this space, is being being honest with yourself, being honest with others, and then, you know, overcoming that conditioned voicelessness that you have that keeps you from speaking up for yourself, that keeps you from thinking that, you know, if I say something, it won't make a difference. Like, it does, actually. It makes a difference for you. Mm-hmm. Even if no one hears it, that made a difference to get that off of your chest and say it for you. Um it's hard to not fear consequences, but I think the more that we stop fearing the consequences and it becomes more of us, we need to stop socializing the silence and start socializing like the fact that if you do something that's sexual harassment or sexist or racist, that you are now being conditioned to not do that mm-hmm. because you will, you will be called out. I love that. I love you're like all encompassing. Like we're gonna bring it back to everything that we talked about. Answer about well, no, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, thank you, Kat, so much for for talking with me and taking the time after a very long time of trying to get you on. I um, miss everybody. For folks on the uh, that don't know, like we did that podcast together. Please don't go look it up. I sound like a first year grad <laughs> student who has no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> The transformation is crazy. <laughs> um, Kat, do you have anything that you want to plug, promote, shout out? Um, no, I don't have anything to, to plug necessarily. If you like random art, I do do some art on the side. It is she how I does, and it's great. It's really, really great. Also, check out her song that she just came out with. Oh, we can link that. Yeah, I'm going to link the song. I'm going to link, I'll link everything that we talked about, um, well, extraneous stuff in the in the show notes of the two podcasts we mentioned. And I'll link uh, your Instagram and your song um, yeah. in the show notes because your song is great. <laughs> it's about coronavirus. Um, <laughs> well, wait, wait. For people listening, it's about... I needed to, right, I'm a, I'm a creative person. I'm also a terribly emotional person. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And I, the, I, the song is for me, but it's for everybody. But it's basically, it's the blues. It's how I wanted to just say, like, it's, it's okay to not be okay right now. And it's and really this- good. <laughs> it's really good. Um, so thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, if you would like to connect with the show um, and do connect with the show, uh, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PrettyFaceLady3. Um, if you'd like to say hi, uh, you'd like to be on the show, you know someone who'd like to be on the show, um, please email us at PrettyFaceWomen at MTAPFPodcast.com. And we will talk to you soon.